0: This is That's in the Bible.com.
1: That's in the Bible, episode 109 The Falling Away.
0: Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear, now is at Humbling your hearts to God, save from the chastening rod, seek the way pillars. Christians away. Jesus is Hello,
1: welcome to That's in the Bible. Glad you could join us if you're a returning listener or tuning in for the first time. We're glad to have you join us. That's in the Bible is a podcast that takes a close look at what the Bible actually says. You know, so often the truth of the Bible is clouded with religion or dogma or it's simply ignored which is why I think people are so surprised when they actually see what the Bible really says. And to that end, we bring you this podcast. Joining us today, Pastor Strobel.
2: Pastor Strobel, how are you, sir? I am doing well, once again, by the grace of God.
1: Amen. How are things in beautiful Lockport, New York?
2: At the moment, the sun is shining, and that uh, is pretty good for this time of year. We'll take it.
1: Amen. Amen. Brother Steve was trying to join with us today, but uh, Pastor Steve couldn't make it. Uh, He's having some technical difficulties on his end, but we do have a very special guest joining us today, and that is Robert Militello. Robert Militello, sir, how are you, brother?
3: Thank God I'm well. No complaints. I'm afraid to complain. I know what God can do when you complain too much. (laughs) Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Now, you're located in beautiful uh, Pensacola.
3: Yes, sir. Wonderful. The weather here is great. This is a great time of year here. The trees are just getting the buds going and the leaves. And it's about 72, 73, 74 every day, drops down to about 60, sometimes the high 50s. Very pleasant. Uh, But in a little while, well, probably by the end of April, The air conditioner will be on 24 hours a day, (laughs) and that'll stay until uh, mid-October, at least, the end of October, sometimes well into November, and there's not much you can do about that. So,
1: Amen. Well, really glad that you could join us. You know, I first became aware of you from reading uh, the Bible Believers Bulletin, and Uh I have to tell you, I found your articles very informative and a blessing, and look forward to them. Um, Can you give us a little bit of your background?
3: Yeah, Robert Franz Militello, the middle name is Franz, named after an uncle in Germany and is only – well, there's a couple of people that know, but the lady at the bookstore, every time she sees me, hello, Franz. She's the only <laughs> one that calls me, because she's German herself, and she loves the idea that I'm part German. So uh, uh, here I am approaching – well, not yet, but my 76th birthday will come up this year. This July, I've been in Christ since January 1978, so that's 44 years, and I've seen a lot. You know, I've had all kinds of experiences. Uh, most of my Christian life was in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, dealt with, I can't tell you how many thousands of people, Jews, all kinds, of ethnic groups, you name it. People say New York is a melting pot. I correct them and say, no, it's not a melting pot. It's a mixing bowl. Tomatoes stay tomatoes. Lettuce stays stays lettuce. (laughs) Cucumbers stay. Everybody goes off to be with their own. And we have ethnic neighborhoods, and that's the way it is. And I noticed that early in life. But the salvation that came to me was a miracle. At just close to 32 years of age, I was getting a haircut at my brother-in-law's barbershop. And he said to me, "There's this fellow wants to have a few words with you." And everybody, everybody's impatient in New York. I says, "What does he want? I, who is this guy?" And he said, oh, "Just be, you know, just be kind. Hear him out for a second. And I said, "All right." And he comes over, and he introduces himself, and he says he's an evangelist. His name was Ralph Moltari. He's an ex-Catholic, and he started. Well, he asked a simple question, really: If you were to drop dead tonight, where would your soul go? I said, I don't have a clue. I haven't been judged yet. I don't know. He says, uh, well, then you're lost. I said, how could I be lost? I haven't been judged yet. He says, no, you're lost because you're basing it on good works versus sins. And, you know, hopefully your good works will get you in there. I says, well, yeah. He says, well, that's religion. It doesn't save anybody. No religion does. And all religions teach the same thing. Do this, that, this and that and hope you make it. I said, well. He says, well, you're lost. You're going to hell, except you be born again. I said, born again? What is that, reincarnation? So he says, no. And he explained it to me. You need the spiritual birth. And I was intrigued. I says, wow. I said, well, didn't I get that at uh, confirmation? He said, no, no. You just had a ceremony there. It didn't do anything. Water baptism doesn't do anything except make you wet. doesn't change anything. And uh, without that birth from heaven, you remain lost, no matter how educated or moral or whatever. You're just going to go to hell. He said, you believe in hell? I said, yes, I do. I said, you don't want to go there? I said, no. He says, well, well, would you take the plunge? Would you ask the Lord to save you? Would you believe the scripture if I show you where the scripture says one thing and your church says another? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go with the truth. I'll go with the scripture. So he said, you're going to be okay. So not long after that, my wife and I, my sister and her husband, met together at a home in Brooklyn, and he prayed with us to be saved. And I never looked back. It was the it was January the sixth, 1978. I'll never forget. It was a cold night in Brooklyn, and after talking to us for about a couple of hours, he said, Are you ready to trust Christ alone? I said, Well. One of my sins is gambling. I've gambled a lot, so why not? Why not? And, and it was an amazing thing what the Amen. Lord did. As far as reincarnation, you know, I got—I I once went to a Jesuit priest with that question, and he, believe it or not, quoted the Bible. He said, it is appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. He was right. <laughs> he said, sure. first, first time I got a scriptural answer from a Jesuit priest, amazing.
2: Yeah.
3: And that's been it. So I started uh, talking to people about the Lord and uh, opened up my basement to chairs and a podium and uh, get people over to hear what I had to say. And people came over, had a lot of credibility and uh, people, you know, I, I, I taught Catholic school for five years from 1968 to 1973. So and my church uh, had, oh, well, everybody was a Catholic except for one Jewish guy, I believe, and maybe somebody else that wasn't ex-Catholic. So it was good that I would be able to teach things from the Bible and show them where the Catholic church was wrong. And uh, I had that going. At the time, I was working for New York City government as an efficiency expert. And I started that job as a loss person in 1978. Uh, 73, it was June 73. I had graduated uh, Long Island University with a degree in journalism in 1968 and then teaching at St. Thomas Aquinas School, sixth grade in the Park Slope area of Brooklyn. Uh, coming home early after teaching, I decided to go back to school at night and, and not waste time. And it was then that I was able to get a master's degree in uh, geopolitics and international relations and in, that opened up doors for me uh, when I went to work for New York City, as far as higher pay and politicians, and it, it really was a a great thing as far as moving ahead. So, and I I, I forgot to mention I had gone to Jesuit school uh, from 1959 to 1963, and I graduated that June of 1963. I was still 16 years of age, believe it or not. I had skipped twice in grammar school. Uh, the the nun had told my mother, you know, Robert is very good, he's quick, he's sharp, he reads, and he's ahead of everybody, so we're going to push him ahead. It didn't work out good for me, though, brother, because when I went to school, I was small, I was just a little kid, and there were bullies, like every school has. Mm -hmm. They get pushed around a little bit, but it taught me a lot, and I did well in the Jesuit school. We had uh, German, which I was okay with, and Well, Latin was mandatory for four years. Latin was mandatory. And it was an old style English type of school, Brooklyn Preparatory on 1150 Carroll Street, Brooklyn, New York. It was uh, we had a headmaster, not a principal or a dean. We had Father Friedrich Engel, German. Engel means angel. He was far from an angel. (laughs) He he was he was the prefect of discipline, a tough old bird. And if you ran down the stairs on your way to the cafeteria, he met me once at the at the bottom landing there and gave me a forearm smash to my chest and knocked (laughs) me for a loop. (laughs) It was physical. And he said, if you don't like it, you know, get your father over here or get your behind out of the school or whatever. It was tough. It was tough. And uh, I asked my father about leaving and going to a public high school. And he said, not on your life. I'm paying good money for you to go to this prep school, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to finish it. And looking back, he was right. It was good. It was good training, good discipline. The Jesuits are very good educators and honorable. There's an honor system there. You don't have any of that today. Like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he gives a whole list of how uh, character declines terribly in the last days of the church age, which we're in. And, but back then it was different. You you were on the honor system. The priest would leave the room and nobody would look at anybody or look at anybody's paper. And there was a discipline. There was a certain reverence and a fear there. And as far as preparing you for college, well, that was the the, the job of the school. It was a preparatory school. Nobody left there without going on to college. That was a given. And it was important to get good scores on your college boards, which I did. Latin helped me a lot. Taking Latin four years when I took the verbal part of the college board entrance exams, there were lots of words. You know, they had the word and then multiple choice where I couldn't figure out what the word meant. But Latin gave me the uh, answer. I remember reading the word uh, pugilist. Uh, but I knew from Latin puglio meant to fight. Yeah. So um, among the multiple answers was pug- was boxer and mm-hmm. inebrio. Which is drunk, he's inebriated. Yeah. Or the word Carsons, C A R C E N S, in Latin, which means prison. That's where you're incarcerated. So I was picking up words left and right from the Latin root and got myself a good score and got admitted. And by the way, I tell people, English is uh, half and half, half Latin and half German. All your uh, polysyllabic words, for the most part, are all Latin roots. And all your monosyllabic words are Germanic. So our language, our wonderful language, is a mixture of Latin and German. And if I say something in German slowly, uh, you could pick it up. Uh, Gib mir ein Glas Milch. Well, who can't figure that out? Give me a glass of milk. I mean, it's 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 so interesting studying languages, which I did also in college, and uh, here I am, uh, the miracle of God. I was saved. And I immediately set out like a Cornelius type of experience where I had all my relatives, Italian side anyway, and the extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, you name them, and uh, got them all together and started uh, lecturing them on how the Catholic Church is going to send them to hell. And because I had credibility, they started to fall in line one after another. By the time the dust cleared, there had to be a dozen, if not two dozen relatives and friends saved out of catholicism well, so the lord did a wonderful thing for me and it was the italian type of let's everybody get together and now you're going to hear what i have to say and show from the bible you know the bible says this and this is what we believed or still believe as catholics and both can't be right so make a choice I didn't show them all. My aunt says, "Oh no, I've always prayed to Mary." I says, well, "Well, that's ridiculous. But she's a dead Jewish girl in heaven. She can't hear you. Only God hears prayer." And then I showed her what Paul said here: yeah, "There is one mediator, one." I do you need to interpret that? O and E. Okay, could you figure that out? One is one, not many. We don't go to Mary or saints. So I kept knocking down all their objections and all their traditions and. That's a tough thing to battle at first. Catholics put a lot of stock in that stuff. You know, this is my tradition. I said, so what? If somebody in my family or our relatives, somebody jumped off a bridge every 4th of July, should I follow just because it's a tradition? Does that make any sense? It's ridiculous. And I says, come on, we'll discuss this with the priest. My mother was tough at the time with the Catholicism, with the statues and all of that. I says, come on, you spend a lot of money. I'm buying these mass cards every time somebody dies and you got all kinds of relatives that are dying and you run to the rectory to buy a so-called mass card 10 dollars or whatever which is a lot of money in those days and and uh, because you think that soul went to purgatory I said now let's go to the priest and let's ask him where purgatory is in the bible <laughs> I got in between a lot of arguments and priests you know god bless them they they uh they're lost as a goose they they know more about the rules of the church and canon law and all of that stuff than they do the bible they don't know the bible but i got a lot of them convicted and uh and asked them to say look if two things contradict the bible and your belief what are you going to go with mother church is not going to save you so uh I had some success and, and with Jews also, witnessing to Jews, a number of Jews that I helped get saved at least and put a King James Bible in their hand. I got to tell you one guy, God bless him, uh, Greenberg, he was <laughs> he came over to me one day, this was at the office in New York, and he says, yeah, oh, this stupid synagogue where I go, they just raised the, the price of the seats for high holy days. And that's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it used to be 200 a year. Now it's up to 350. It's a ripoff. I'm sick of this. I says, well, it's all a business. You know that. I says, I saw the Catholic Church that way. It's just a business. And he says, I'm sick of it. So I started talking to him about what it means to put your trust in God and not in any religion. I said, religion doesn't do anything for you so he listened to me and before you know it i showed him uh nothing from the new testament because they won't take it isaiah psalm 22 isaiah 53 naturally and zechariah now look upon me whom they pierced and i showed him that i says look that's the messiah and he was pierced right here in your book psalm 22 which is a photograph of the crucifixion and then isaiah 53 i said i'm not showing you any new testament stuff if your heart is open, you could see Christ right here in your own book in the Old Testament. Amen. He said, "Pretty good, brother." He says, "Now, well, he didn't call me brother." He says, "Bob, I'll take that Bible, but pray for me because if my wife catches me, she'll divorce me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Took a King James Bible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had a lot. I, God would bless my efforts with the Jews. Amen. So I went Amen. to work in 1973, June of 73, and I stayed there what till uh, 2000. And I left in the summer of 2000 after reaching my 54th birthday. And I worked under five mayors. Uh, John Lindsay was mayor when I first started. Then Abe Beam, he was the first Jewish mayor New York City ever had. He got in a lot of trouble. The city almost went bankrupt. He had to get bailed out by the governor of New York State. And then there was the uh, Ed Koch. Ed Koch was there for three terms, 12 years and then New, New York City elected its first, his first black mayor, David Dinkins. Oh, God bless his soul. He was a disaster. Good family man, but he didn't know what he was doing. So in fact, he was so bad that after four years in office, a city which has a Democratic registration eight to one over the Republicans elected a Republican mayor, Rudy Giuliani. So they were so anxious to get rid of him that they put Giuliani in there, and he was there two terms, and then I left. Uh, And I told people about Trump losing. I said, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to the the Republican Party. So I gave him the story of Dinkins. I said, sometimes you have to have somebody come in who's so terrible that people look back and say, oh, my God, what did we do here? <laughs> so, you know, the Lord works in strange ways, and uh, sometimes those kind of things ha- have to happen. But as far as the topic is concerned, if you talk to, uh, it, it well, 2 Thessalonians is where we're going to go for this, chapter 2, verse 3. If you turn to Second Thess chapter 2, verse 3. Before I go there, I wanted to mention something that I had seen years ago, and I told somebody, uh, proof to me we're in the last days. I says, well, I'm not going to argue with you. I could set, show you some things from the Bible, but I could show you something that's very unique and different, and you can't say anything against this. So I opened up my Bible to Joel chapter 3, and I said, look at verse 10 it says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. I said, notice that. When in history was a small nation able to tell a big neighbor, I'm not afraid of you, I can hurt you. I mean, it never happened. Imperial Rome crushed its neighbors, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, under Alexander the Great, all through history. But now in the nuclear age you get a little fourth class little dumpy place like North Korea which by the way just launched just the other day an ICBM they tested and it landed 200 miles away from the Japanese island there, and the Japanese complained about it I says where do you where do you find in history where a small nation can tell a larger nation i can hurt you i can hurt you let the weak say I am strong. What makes them strong? He says, I I, I can't believe them. I, I said, look at it. If this isn't if this isn't our time, then how do you explain it? You got nations like Pakistan has a nuclear weapon. Little Israel. Plus the other nations that have nuclear weapons. So a weak nation with a nuclear weapon can turn to a stronger power and say, well maybe you can overrun me, but I'm going to punish you. I'm going to hurt you. And I just wanted him to see. I says, look, there's a lot of ways I could prove the Bible is the word of God. And first of all, the Jew. I mean, it's <laughs> what what people can trace their ancestry back to their first parents. Tell me who was the first Italian. And who was the first Italian mother. And what children did they have? Or the first German? or Spanish person. Where? Only the Bible. It tells you Abraham and Sarah. And then came Isaac and Rebecca. And Jacob and his wives, the whole family tree is there, the whole lineage. How is that? And how have they been preserved all these years, all these centuries? All the great powers are gone. Pharaoh's Egypt, Imperial Rome, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Alexander the Great. They're all in the sand. And yet Israel remains, and Israel is in its own biblical land, speaking its biblical language in fact, go so far as to say using the currency that they had back then, which is the shekel. Only in Israel, they call it the NIS, the, the new Israeli shekel. And look at that. How do you explain that? So most people just uh, I, I can't. I said, no, you can't. You, you're going to have to come right out and say, well, I, I'm not going to believe the Bible for my own personal reasons. Well, you're going to have to admit God wrote it. But because you want to hide and pretend you're not going to answer to a holy God, you'll just uh, you'll, you'll pull that agnostic crap. Well, we don't know. You hear a lot of that, especially from educated people. They wear that as a badge of honor. Well, we can't be sure. And I says, well, you can be. You're just unwilling to check it out. That's just, You're not intellectually honest. So there's the proof. Now, another important thing to note, which maybe people who are listening to this, God's people wouldn't know this, but I I get it from the Jewish papers, which I read every morning uh, after my devotions and study. I look at the uh, Haaretz and the Jerusalem Post, the Israeli News, and something else from Brooklyn, uh, an Orthodox paper. And uh, for the first time since the days of Jesus Christ, the amount of Jews now in Israel equals and will pass. The amount of Jews that are in the diaspora that live outside of Israel. That hasn't happened since the Lord's day. That's amazing. So the other thing is that the, uh, the applications for visiting the Temple Mount have risen 300% in the last year and a half or so. And well... Uh, Really, the Orthodox Jews, many of them believed you can't go to the Temple Mount because the Messiah isn't here yet. But now a lot of them have changed their minds and said, well, we're waiting for the Moshiach, which is their word for Messiah, uh, but we could still go to the uh, Temple Mount. And a lot of the secular Jews that really didn't have much interest in visiting are, are reconnecting and wanting to know more about the Temple and what went on. And I said to one Jew, who is stirring up that interest in their hearts to want to know more and more? So what is the Lord doing in our day? Well, he's preparing us for the transition. The body of Christ will be removed and a Jewish queen will come like Esther. Uh, now, the falling away. So Somebody might say, Brother tell you took a long time to get to that point. I know. <laughs> it's Paul, you know, he lived during the days and the temple still stood. So they were all waiting uh, for the Lord to come back. It didn't happen. I don't know that Paul was clear that there was going to be a 2,000-year gap on this whole thing, but there was. But where, where the falling away is spoken about in chapter uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Except, that's the day of the Lord, the beginning of the day of the Lord, which which starts with the disappearing of the church from the earth. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. That's where we're at. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Well, the Antichrist isn't here yet. Uh, but the falling away is here in a big way. Now, a lot of Christians, I think are a little bit off on this. Talk about the falling away and say, well, uh, things aren't the way they used to be. And that's true. And maybe the zeal of the church is not what it used to be. They are making changes like the Presbyterian church took out of their hymnal onward. Christian soldiers. What a hymn. What a great hymn. Uh, they took it out because the, uh, the complaint was it's too militant. It's too militant. So that tells you that in these last days, we've had a, uh, what I call a feminization of the body of Christ. It's becoming more and more female oriented, which means more emphasis put on sensitivities and feelings (laughs) rather than doctrine and the pure word of God put right in your face if you need it there and shown to you in a clear way. This is what God says and what you think or anybody else thinks doesn't make a difference. Uh, it's hard to get that across now. So there is the falling away, but in a, in a greater way, a lot of Christians believe. Well, we're we're off into the modern translations, and there's been a falling away from the pure of God, the pure Word of God. No, it goes much deeper than that. The falling away. If you look at all of Christendom, so-called Christendom. The Roman Catholic Church with a billion, the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Orthodox churches with maybe three hundred million or more, the Protest all the Protestant bodies, uh, two hundred some odd million, and the uh, non-Protestant, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, and others, uh, all of them professing Christ, but how many possessing Christ? The falling away is now real. If anybody reads what. The Pope Francis has declared that everybody can find God if they're sincere. The idea of Jesus Christ being the only way to God is out. It's out. And that's the beginning of the falling away. There was a time when even the Catholic missionaries, they all taught the same thing. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no way to get to God. That's what sent missionaries around the world to preach the gospel. Only the Catholic gospel was a gospel of works and not the gospel of the grace of God that Paul taught. So they had the wrong gospel and damned people with it. But the idea was Jesus Christ is the only way to God, not Muhammad, not anything else. And Catholic missionaries taught that. Now that has changed. In order to get along with the United Nations, the Vatican was told, you've got to drop this idea of exclusivity because we're living in a globalist world where everything everybody needs to feel included we they believe in inclusivism you know this big tent everybody's under a big tent so you going out and telling people that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ is not going to fly that's out now the pope that we had before this guy Benedict the 16th wouldn't go along with that You see, he was pretty much a doctrinaire fellow, and that's one of the reasons the Jesuits moved to get him out of there and convinced him that he had to retire. So now he's holed up in some hotel there in Vatican City, and he comes out every Easter and Christmas, you know, (laughs) gives his little blessing, and uh, he's told to just keep his mouth shut. He did make a statement when he was pope about the Muslims uh, practicing violence at times to make converts. And that was a no-no. So the Jesuits put their man in, Francis the They got their man in, and he wants to get along and bring in the uh, the new world order and the, the make globalization real. So he has to go along with the UN. Uh, by the way, if you read the Jesuit, the uh, Vatican statement on climate warming and the danger to the planet. It reads almost exactly like the U.N. statement. It's the same thing. The Vatican is just going along with whatever the U.N. says. And I pointed that out in a message I gave not long ago about Caesar and uh, Herod becoming fast friends. As the time approached to deal with Jesus Christ, these two enemies became friends. And that's what's happening now with the U.N. and the Vatican. As the time approaches for the church to leave, they'll become fast friends. The only sticking point right now is still the the birth control thing with the abortion issue. That's still a sticking point. And eventually the Catholic Church is going to have to cave a little bit on that. Uh, and the U.N. will say, OK, uh, also homosexuality, that's got to be the pope. This pope won't necessarily change the teaching, but he will keep saying what he said before. Who am I to judge? In other words, it will give you the impression maybe it's not sinful, maybe it is. We're not God, we don't know. So uh, a lot of uh, miserable people that are lost in that sin can turn around and say, see, the Pope isn't judging us. So that's the falling away. It's happening now uh, right before our eyes throughout the world. It'll go on, it'll get worse. And it'll all come under this inclusive umbrella called the fatherhood of God, And the idea now where uh, everyone is a child of God, we're all God's children. How about that? You'll never hear a politician, whether it's local, uh, race, or or statewide, or federal, nobody is going to say anything but we're all God's children. Because if you don't, how are you going to get elected if you say the majority of people are the devil's children? Who's going to elect you? (laughs) that's, that's not going to be. So we're all going to hear that uh, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, which is really easy to promote. As long as you keep saying, God loves everybody. You just got to keep hammering away at that. You're good. I'm good. We're all good. God loves everybody. God loves everyone. And it just waters down the idea that there's only one way to God. You keep repeating that. And that's what churches are doing. And, evangelists and so-called Bible teachers, you know, God loves everybody. Well, God loved you at Calvary. That's for sure. Now, what does Jude say? See, right before the book of Revelation, you have Jude and he sets out uh, to write about something that he doesn't wind up writing about. Because if you look at this, it's very interesting that the Lord would have to say that the book of Revelation has in uh, the church disappearing after the first three chapters. The church disappears. So right before that, you had Jude. It says here in uh, verse 3 in Jude, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, why in the world where just before the rapture of the church, he sits down to, talk, to write about the common salvation and how great it is to be saved and we're all one family and all of that. And it turns around and says, no, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should what? Earnestly contend. Well, what is that? Let's argue. For what? For the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. What faith? That Jesus Christ is the only way to God, period. Faith in the blood of atonement gets you saved. So argue for that. Hold that up. That's, that's your foundation. Now, why would he have to say that in the last days? Because the church has gotten away with that. The church doesn't want to contend for anything <laughs> except put more money in the place and build a bigger building and get the latest technological equipment and expand the parking lot and all of that. So he's saying contend for the faith. Christians don't want to argue. I have Christians tell me that all the time. Oh, I don't want to bring that up and it divides people and whatever. Yeah, well, contend for the faith means you might have to take a position that other people are going to get upset over. And uh, you might lose friends. Why not? And the, the, the thing with the, the Jews, they want everyone to like them. They want. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Uh, they, want, they want the Gentile world. To to like them. Is is that really necessary for them to feel better? They were told when David Ben-Gurion was going to uh, announce the uh, formation of the state of Israel uh, well he was told by some of the rabbis that in Torah in the book of Numbers that Israel was to be a peculiar people, a separate people apart from the nations and he brushed that aside so he applied for UN membership which the UN granted Israel in November 1949, I forget the vote total, but they gave Israel what it wanted, membership in the UN. And some of these orthodox rabbis went to the, uh, the prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, and said, you made a big mistake. You want to get along with the Gentile world, and they will kill us given the chance. They're not going to, well, it's, it turned out the Jews had this desire, you know, why can't we be accepted and loved and uh, uh, you know, the Holocaust said, never again, never again. No, it will come again. It'll be worse than what Hitler ever did. And What Hitler did, he's like a Boy Scout compared to what's going to happen. But that's that desire. See, and that explains this: what's happening in the church in the last days. This falling away, this unwillingness to stand up for what The Lord has us see here in the Bible, which excludes everybody. It's not our, our message is not inclusive. It's exclusive. It excludes everybody who's not willing to put in put their faith in the in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. But we want to be friendly and we want to have uh, people like us. You know, I I tell people, look, I don't care what people think. I'm not running for office. I'm not taking a poll to see if I'm liked or not. I couldn't care less. And even Paul said, though, I'd be rude in speech. So I'm a New Yorker. I'm from Brooklyn. And I'm used to telling it like it is, plain, in your face. If you don't like it, lump it. And we have a problem with that, especially here in the South. The last days here, the church, many of God's people are super sensitive. They're really just too tender. I said to some of them, you know, you you need to go and live in New York for a while and get some heavy duty, heavy grade sandpaper and rub it on your smooth skin. And get used to people there telling you drop dead or whatever, cursing you out or saying shut up, you're a jackass. I mean, that's it. But you don't get that down here because there's a a, a tremendous emphasis put on civility and politeness, which is fine. I'm retired and old, so it doesn't bother me that much. But it does hinder a free exchange of truth. And if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you owe them the truth. And no matter even if it hurts, like Paul said, "Am I become your enemy uh, because I tell you the truth. Now I always use the uh, the story in luke twenty four uh, to compare the Gentile mindset and the Jewish mindset and to explain why Jews are superior in this regard. if you see what happened on the road to Emmaus and you see that uh, a stranger pulls up to these two disciples, and uh, they begin talking and the jews uh, say to this stranger you know what's what's it with you you don't know what happened i'm paraphrasing everyone that knows the bible should know know this story uh you haven't heard what what went on here in in jerusalem in the last couple of days and uh jesus <laughs> he acted like he didn't know and uh what does he say here but the, these disciples tell him, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So that's in uh, Luke 24, 21. So they were walking to Emmaus, which is uh, says three sc- three score furlongs, which is seven and a half miles. That, that's that's quite a walk. Uh, but Jesus came alongside and they didn't recognize him. It says in 16, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And they're talking, one of them's names was Cleopas. And uh, they were upset because they felt everything was finished. Their Messiah, if he was the Messiah, uh, he's finished now and it's all over. And uh, they thought that he was the one, but we trusted that it had been him and now he's dead. Uh, Now, Jews are very keen on being informed about events, what's going on. I know that from living among them. They know everything that's going on. They want to know everything that's going on. They're very well informed on local issues and everything. When I came down here, I realized people didn't have any interest in that. They didn't know who their council member was, their alderman, or whatever. Uh, Jews know all of that. They make it a habit to look that stuff up. Uh, down here, they don't. They don't know, and they don't seem to care. And that explains why uh, they're looking at this stranger, saying, "You mean you haven't heard what what's?" what's the matter with you? Didn't you know what went on the last couple of days? And the Lord pretended no. And, uh, so he, he really rings them out in verse 25. And he said unto them, Oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I call them fools. The Jews insult one another when they think that you're dumb and you should have known something. They don't hold back. And, uh, Although the Lord kind of did when he dealt with Nicodemus. I thought he did it in a beautiful way when he says, thou art a master in Israel and knowest not these things. When he's talking about the new birth, and obviously Nicodemus didn't know what he was talking about. Now, in New York, a Jew might put it a different way. Uh, Didn't you go to school? How come you turn out to be such a jackass? You should know this. That's a Jewish way. And the Lord is saying it in a nice way. You're a teacher and you don't know this. Well, here he's calling them fools. He's insulting them. Jews don't like to be insulted when it comes to learning and intelligence. They don't like to hear that. And he says, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then he gives them a Bible lesson. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And at, it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he gives them a Bible lesson. Oh, by the way, a lot of us, when we appear at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have that said to you. You fool. Didn't you read this? Didn't you know this? I'm sure the Lord was saying, look, you went to Hebrew school as young Jewish boys. Yeah. And all the prophecies and scriptures concerning the Messiah were all positive. Right. You were told that he's going to come (coughs) and overthrow the occupiers of Jerusalem and destroy God's enemies and uh, set up the kingdom. Yeah. Well, you didn't notice any of the negative prophecies concerning the Messiah. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 and 14. You didn't hear anything in school about the Messiah dying and being. to that no. So they were presented just like today in the churches. You no, know, God loves everybody. And let's have let's not talk about anything negative because doctrine divides people. So he calls them fools. Now, it says here in verse 28. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And he winds up eating with them in the next verse. Now here's the thing here's the Jew. He gets insulted. You can call him names. I know, I lived among them and I treat him like he's nothing. But if he thinks he can learn something from you and gain an advantage by learning that, he's okay with whatever you called him. Not saying he'll smile and say thank you. He doesn't pay any mind to what, you're, what name calling or what you're going to feel about. He wants to learn and pick your brain. That's what he's about, so he can advance himself. I've seen that in college over and over again, undergraduate and then graduate school. That's the way they are. That's one of the reasons God selected this group of people, this nation, to write his book. That's the way they are. Feelings go out the window. I want to learn. I want to be educated. I want to know the ways of God and how they affect me personally. Now, here's the Gentile. The Gentile puts the emphasis on feelings, on the ambience. I came to this church. I didn't feel anybody extending themselves to greet me. I didn't see that. I didn't feel there was much of a spirit of love here. I saw this was that. That was this. Oh, man, a lot. They put the emphasis on how they feel or how they want to feel. The Jew puts the emphasis on learning. There's a world of difference between the two. And that's why the Gentiles have all this problem in following the Lord according to his word, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And they've got a problem. And that shows you the difference between the Jewish mindset and the Gentile mindset. And someday there's not going to be much of a difference. But I noticed that when I came down here. The emphasis is on politeness and civility and all of that, which I said I don't mind. But it kind of it, it constrains you uh, compared to the way I was in New York as far as talking plainly and laying things out in a plain way. Not necessarily rude. I'll rude if I have to be. But uh, to put it out so that you have a clear conscience with God, you know, like Paul said, and the, that he didn't fail to declare the whole counsel of God, the the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole Megillah. Not this thing, God loves you and it's all going to work out and all of this and make you happy and say something positive. So you'll come back next week and continue to hear good stuff. So what do we have in the churches today in the last days Are falling away? You bet. We got a bunch of Dr. Phil's in the pulpit. Yeah, like Dr. Phil on television. That's what we got. And They sprinkle in a few Bible verses here and there, you know, like they put the flavor enhancers on food to keep up the shelf life for some. And you think you're getting Bible and you're getting nonsense. And you say, how do you know, Brother Militello? Because I've sat among Jews and learning and class and everything. And I know what they put a premium on and what they discount as nonsense and a waste of time. And the Lord set the mark for that at at 12 years of age. The the first thing that you read in the scriptures about him talking is when he gets so-called lost in the temple. He wasn't lost. He knew exactly where he was. And Mary had to go off looking for him and all of that. But when they finally fi- find him and the scripture says, they said, "Wist ye not, he says to them, I'm sorry. You know, they said, well, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And uh, well, the truth is, it's not the father. Mary lied. I told that to Catholics, by the way, in my family. I says, you see here in Luke's gospel, Mary is calling Joseph Jesus, his father. He, that wasn't the father. He was a stepfather. Now, why would she lie to protect the reputation? Because Nazareth had a bad reputation as a Roman garrison town, and it was kind of loose there. And maybe some people thought that uh, she gave birth out of wedlock or Jesus was a bastard child. But she made it clear that your father and I had sought thee sorrowing. I says that she lied. Jesus, Joseph was not the boy's father. Now, if you want to believe your own silly Catholic church, go ahead and believe it. But I believe the scripture. Now, Jesus answers clearly. Wist ye not? Wist comes from the German uh, verb, uh, listen, to know. So you got that old German word in there. Wist ye not what? That I must be what? About my father's business. Notice the word Business. Here he is at 12 years old, and he's calling it a business. You know how Jews are when it comes to business? They're bottom line people. Bottom line means nothing personal, strictly business. I got to make a decision based on business. I can't get involved with whose feelings are going to get hurt which one of the relatives is not going to like me anymore because I've seen this happen in Jewish partnerships and Jewish businesses where you got to make a decision. Well, this one's got to go because if I don't get rid of this one. The, the profits will suffer and we won't make as much as what we should be making. So they, and you could see it clearly in the book of Acts. I mean, it shows up right there with this bitter contention. The Bible calls it a what? A bitter contention. Is that Acts 13 or something? Between Barnabas and, uh, and Paul. Over John Mark. John Mark had quit on them, right? He quit on them. And uh, Paul didn't want to take him. Now, Barnabas goes over to uh, Paul and says, you know, give him another chance. I could just imagine. Like people say today, you know, God is a God of second chances. I told people, where did you read that? I never read that in the Bible. I never read that. There's no guarantee he'll give you a second chance. You might get the truth one time and then drop dead the next day, which is after you rejected it. Where does it say he's going to give you a second chance and a third chance? I thank God. I got many chances. I wouldn't be talking to you right now, but there's no guarantee in the Bible. He's going to give anybody a second chance. Don't presume upon him. Why boast not thyself for tomorrow for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You don't know what's going to be tomorrow. Well, you got Mary, you got Barnabas's uh, sister, Mary, and she had that uh, meeting in her house. Remember when Peter got sprung from jail by the angels and, she had a prayer meeting going. They were praying for Peter and all of that. Well, she's the uh, the sister to Barnabas, and I'm sure she leaned on Barnabas, knowing the Jews. Oh, my son is a good boy. He really deserves another chance, and you need to talk to Paul because Paul had said, you know, I'm going on another missionary journey. Check things out. So Barnabas goes to Paul and talks about bringing uh, John Mark along, and Paul right away says, no, it's, it's not going to happen. I'm not taking it. Well, what do you mean? Well, he quit on me in Pamphlea. He quit and he might quit again. And I'm not going to take him. So, well, he's still going to, you know, he'll be OK. Well, maybe down the road he might and he might not. I don't know. Well, as it turns out, he was profitable later on. But at this point in time, you, you got to understand why the Lord used the word business. This is a business. Uh, we can't take a chance on that we got to act like it's a business and make decisions that are based on a business sense. That's what Paul is doing here. And he says, no, it says here in one Acts 15, but uh, verse 38, but Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them, from Paphilia, and went not with them to the work. Now watch this. And the contention, see what Jude said in the last days, contend for the faith, argue for it. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed on to Cyprus. That's the Lord's way of saying my people are going to make decisions based on what's good for my father's business. That's how they ought to behave. Not what's good for the family, for their friends, for their political situation, anything like that. What's What's the will of God? And that's what Paul did. And uh, thank God, uh, what's his name? Silas was waiting in the wings because if you read some verses before that when they were in Antioch and the disciples were dismissed, it says in verse thirty two and Judas and Silas, being prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren blah 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 verse thirty three and after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace from the brethren and It says in verse thirty four notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still it's amazing how the Lord has somebody in the bullpen the like this, I know his son does love baseball. The Lord has somebody in the bullpen in case the starting pitcher starts to tire out. He's got somebody ready to get in there, and in this case, he's got Silas ready to get in there. And, uh, and Silas stayed behind until it was, and it turned out great because they had that big revival in the in the jail in Philippi, and and Paul chose Silas. So these decisions are made on the basis of. What's best for my father's business? How can I operate and and have the wisdom to make the decisions that will improve his bottom line? Because the scripture says we all must give an account. We're going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord is a bottom line Jew. I keep telling that to Christians. You have no idea what you're going to face at the judgment seat of Christ. A Jewish accountant that has every hair on your head numbered and knows every penny that went into your pocket and what you did with it and what you didn't do with it. You realize what you're going to face there, the kind of questioning that's going to go on. No wonder Paul said in Philippians, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." And think of this question: one of the great questions in the Bible. You find it in Malachi, and I know it has to do with the, the Old Testament. But what he says is, "Will a man rob God?" Would you put your hand in God's pocket and take his money? Say, oh, Brother Militello, I wouldn't think of such a thing. Well, you better give an explanation for what you did with God's money. You're going to meet a Jewish accountant. And he's very interested in what kind of return he got on his investment in you. Well, oh, Brother Militello, you know, that's... I said, think about it that way. Well the more time i spend in the bible the more it's true you you just get nervous and very concerned uh, because well you could talk about flying up to meet the lord and and all the joy and that's going to occur then but that judgment seat of christ i call it the lord's great ironing board and why do i call it that because he's going to have a church without spot or wrinkle and all the things that should have been done down here and weren't are going to get straightened out up there. They have to. And I know he's not going to bring up sin. Sin is under the blood. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about your service record, how you performed for the Lord. What kind of return did he get? I got some Christians. Sometimes you run into such stupid, you know, well, but at least I'm saved, with it. it's a way of saying I don't get into that too much, I don't worry, I said, at least you're saved, did you feel good about that? Well, I says, that's great, it's a miracle, thank God you're saved, but what if I came home <laughs> from Brooklyn, Brad, with all D's on my report card, and my father had to sign that report card, and I saw the expression on his face, and I said to him, Pop, at least I passed, you think he'd be happy with that? You think you say, well, that's pretty good, son. I'm glad you passed. I don't think so. So what are you going to do when you meet the Lord? Well, give it some thought. We're, all, we're going to give an account. And they might not be thinking about what they owe the Lord in terms of service. But uh, isn't it amazing how Paul closes out the body epistles? Not just the ones for the churches, but even the private ones. And that last one, Philemon. And what's the whole point of that? That little epistle is all about debt, realizing you're a debtor and you owe a great debt. And he reminds Philemon about that regarding Onesimus. He says, if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. In other words, you're a debtor. Nobody likes to get get notices in the mail, you fell behind on your payments. This is your final reminder, pay up or else, or blah, blah, blah. I understand that's human nature. We don't like it. But you know the Lord does that. The Holy Spirit does that with us. You owe, you owe, you owe. And look at what he says in 19 in that little epistle. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self decides. In other words, that's a Jewish way of saying, I don't really want to bring this up. I don't want to remind you what you owe me regarding your own salvation and whatever, uh, but I will remind you anyway. Oh, <laughs> that's a real typical Jewish thing. I'm not going to bring this up, but I am. Why? Because I want to put guilt on you, okay? That's what I want to do. I want to put guilt on you and make you aware that you owe the Lord a lot. You owe me a lot. And I expect you to perform. Take this guy back, put him in your employ, and do right by him and forget the past. Like Paul says in Philippians, forgetting those things are behind. I'll oh, tell you about how he wronged you, whatever. God covered that, and God covers your, your mistakes. So, What's your problem? You're going to bring up the the, the fact that he did this and beat him over the head with that? I said, that's the fruit of Catholicism. When I think about it, somebody said, what did you get out of Catholicism? I said, two big pineapples, one called fear and one called guilt. That's what what I was served as a Catholic over and over and over again until the Lord opened my eyes and said, it's uh, easy to get saved. There's no works involved. All your righteousness is as filthy rags, say it, the Lord. Well, how do you tell that to somebody who's religious and they're depending on the, their so-called good works? But I knew I was a sinner when I was witness to, and I did believe in hell, and I was scared. I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to go to hell. So you could have talked to me about the love of God until you were blue in the face. That wasn't going to save me. But when he said to me, you're going straight to hell without the new birth, I says, wow, let me have it. Well, I'll leave you with this. You open up to Esther chapter one and you read that carefully and you reread it and you reread it and you'll know exactly where the church is. As you can understand, Vashti, Queen Vashti telling her king, no, I'm not going to your banquet. I'm going to have one of my own. You keep reading that chapter and you'll see where the church is. And then you'll understand we're in a transitory state right now. The church is going out. It lost its savor. It's worthless as salt. And a new queen is coming in. Somebody's coming in and she's a Jew. And that's where we're at. We're about to go and we're going to be replaced. And that's the way the Lord has it. We've lost our savor in these last days. We're good for nothing. We're not doing what we should be doing. Lift up holiness and remind people that God is holy. I'm tired of this stuff. God loves you. God loves you. Yeah, God is holy and he hates sin. How about that?
2: Amen. Brother Militello certainly does give a unique perspective. Uh, One thing he and I have in common is a Catholic background. Um, I went to Catholic schools also, albeit not not a Jesuit school. And in Uh our classroom, when the the nuns left the classroom, I mean, it was Katie bar the door, so we didn't have, I mean, it was a little (laughs) bit later, and the discipline wasn't as much either, but it was exciting. (laughs) Um, When I first heard Brother Miltello, he was actually living in New York, and I was living in Pensacola, Mm -hmm. and now it's flip-flopped. He's in Pensacola, I'm in New York, Um, even though I'm in western New York, and i mean. When I first got up here, I mean, New York City pretty much, and still to some respect, seemed like a different state or country even. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I'd go down there and visit. My experience going down there and visit and driving, um, man, the second the light turned green, you mm-hmm. know, I must have breathed or something, and the guy behind me is laying on his oh, horn. Oh, no. you, you got to so, move
3: immediately, brother, or you're going to get it. <laughs>
2: oh yeah so so i learned but i tell you what i went to in the mid-90s I took a missions trip to ukraine yeah and when i came back arriving in new york city uh it felt like home so things <laughs> changed
3: no oh, i could do that but you take yeah, the, the I, culture I, uh, and the my catholic school education they were fine i told the priest i i didn't have any uh bad incidents even in high school no. and uh but they were lost You know, it's sad. These people were lost. I worked with nuns when I taught Catholic school. I look back on that, and some of these women were dear, sweet saints. Well, they weren't saints, but they were such sweet. It's hard for me to believe they died and went to hell. I believe it because I know the Bible, but it's a shame. It really is a shame. Uh, They live for the church. They serve Holy Mother Church. They don't know the Lord. With their lips, they praise me, but their hearts are far from me. I got in my Bible, Brother Scroll is funny, a nun sent home a message to my mom when I was in the fifth grade. And I stamped this in my Bible. It's it's a little note she writes concerning me. She says, this is Sister Rosaire. He's excellent in all subjects, but could improve his disposition, which tends to be too stubborn for such a young boy. (laughs) However, he is very generous and neat in all that he does. So even then, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they noticed that I wasn't gonna yield. And that's the way I was, if I thought I was right, but and the Lord took that and used it for his own glory and he made me the way I am. And all of us are so Amen. unique in this way. We have sometimes I think we're gonna leave this earth without really tapping fully into the reservoir of gifts that God has left with us Amen. and the potential that Amen. we have. I think we fall short in that area. We don't spend enough time searching that out. And that's also something that will be brought up at the judgment seat. It'll be a surprise for us. Like, oh, wow, Lord, I never knew that. But until then, what can you do? You live you live to, to please Him every day. I don't know how a Christian can say their life is meaningful unless they're waking up every day looking for ways to please their Lord. I really don't. It's Amen.
2: Well, your cultural experience sure does give us, you, give you, and then in turn give uh, gives us a good perspective. When I first heard you preach, mm-hmm. um, was in Pensacola at a blowout. Yeah. I think I was still in school. And, yeah. Um, Ninety-four. Ninety-five. You and message on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you preached a message on my Jewish boss. That's right. And much much like of uh, much like some of what you gave us today. I mean, it was a lesson in social <laughs> studies along with Bible truth and application. It's yeah. good stuff.
3: Yeah, I preach. I remember that if people are talking about it till this day. I said, you know, in the Italians, I, Dr. Ruckman loved that illustration. I said that the boss is known in Italian as the Capo de tutti capi, the boss of all bosses. I said, that's who I work for.
0: <laughs> and when he gives you
3: an order, there's no such thing as I'll pray about it, I'll think about it, I'll Amen. go home. And no, you do it or you're dead. Why does he say mortify the deeds of the flesh? Kill it. Kill those things that are in the way of you having a good relationship with the Lord. There's nothing to pray about Amen. or mull over a month. Just do it. What does he say? Luke 6, uh, 46. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? What's to pray about? If it's there in the scripture, do it. There are other things to pray about as far as a calling or different decisions that have to be made, but my God, what is the matter with God's people? Well, well, no, no, I'm waiting on the Lord. I said, Do you ever think maybe he's waiting for you to move off your keister and get something done? (laughs) 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 Uh, Oh, man, some of these birds can never make it in New York, honestly, Brother Sroller. They never never last. It's like these Pensacola oh, the drivers down here. If they try to na- navigate oh, the streets myself. of Manhattan, they have to pull over to the side of the road and have a nervous breakdown. They couldn't go beyond an hour dealing oh, yeah. with that. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: after my first experience, the next time I drove through there, I just I went with the flow and put on use all my good <laughs> race car driving skills. I could muster up. Had a blast.
3: It's survival there. You have to drive yeah. aggressively. And, or else you're yep. not gonna survive. And I tell people down here, I say, you people, you, you're like a little goldfish swimming in a tank of sharks. You're never going to make it. And I says, unfortunately, when I first came down here, I didn't know the culture too well. Everybody's patient. and They wait, and they wait, and they wait. And I said, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, uh, half of you people driving look like you're constipated. You have such a darn strained expression on your face that when you come to an intersection, and even though it's clear on each side for a mile in either direction... You're, hitting, you're gripping the wheel, and and you've got this terrible expression on your face of pain, you know, like a person that's constipated. You know, people need a blowout here, some sort of blowout. <laughs> you never make it in New York.
2: that's the tell
3: You have to put it that way. I says, Well, <laughs> though I be rude in speech, I said, Sometimes yeah. I'm going to say things. Watch out. <laughs> I oh, said, I love you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Oh God bless these people. I had to get used to the South, I'll tell you Brother Scrobelow sometimes. You know, bless his heart, bless his heart. Then they go outside and they talk about you, stick a knife in your back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, up Uh, north it was so different. If a person I know from my living there, you had a problem with somebody, you confronted that person. Say, look, is there something I said to offend you or something? you all upset or you uptight about? What is it? What's the deal between you and I? You cleared the air and it was good that way. You don't mm-hmm. have that much of that anymore in the body of Christ. That's why I say all these things have to be ironed out at the judgment seat of Christ. And I tell yeah. people, if you got time and opportunity to straighten something out, get it done now. Don't wait until Amen. you meet the Lord and He's gonna bring the two parties together and it's gonna be a very embarrassing experience. You're gonna have a lot of regret. So get it done now. And that's what I tell I them. And don't hide this, you know, this one sits. 50 rows away from the other one because the other one said something unkind to him 20 years ago is something i mean this is crazy it's like a time uh-huh. when grudges right to the grave
2: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: anyway,
3: well thank god that? for the opportunity of letting me blow <laughs> off some steam here
1: well and, uh, brother militella great to have you i'm glad you could join us today and uh, we look forward to having amen. you in again
3: okay brother i'll uh
1: All right. And Pastor Strobel, thank you, sir.
2: And Brother Steve, I know you're listening.
1: You just can't say anything because your uh, headset is uh, not working. But uh, thanks for joining, too. All right, Lord willing, we'll see you all again real soon.
3: God bless you, man. All of you. God bless you.
0: shall rise Share. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Many will many, many will meet bear. their doom. Trumpets will trumpets sound. will surely sound. All of the dead shall rise.